Hey, podcast family. While I've said it before on other sessions, you know, I'm a fan of Lark's long-acting reversible contraceptives, and I like the Eternogestrol implant. It's pretty neat. Now, I remember the days of placing Norplant in the arm. Those were six rods that went inside a patient's arm. Placing it was one thing. Removing it was quite the other. It took forever. Obviously, we've moved away from Norplant, and now we're at Nexplanon or Eternogestrol. It works and it tends to have the lowest failure rate of all methods of contraception. Yeah, even permanent contraception, Eternergestrol beats permanent sterilization in terms of efficacy. I like it. It works. But what happens when you can't feel the patient's Eternergestrol implant on follow-up? What's the plan there? Whether we place it ourselves or another provider places it and she comes in for a follow-up and then there's just nothing palpable, what's the proper protocol to follow? Well, in this session, we're going to outline this protocol to keep patients safe and to prevent us from getting in trouble digging around into a patient's arm when the implant may not be there. Ready? Let's cover the non-palpable implant now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Yeah, we're going to go ahead and start the podcast by just rocking the boat, just stirring the soup a little bit, just rocking the waters. I don't know. I'm out of analogies here. But let's start with the three-year FDA approval of Eternogestrol. Now, I have to be very clear on the podcast, right, giving out medical information and medical education, I have to stick with the label. The FDA currently has approved the Eternogestrol implant, a.k.a. Nexplanon, for three years of use. However, there's plenty of published data that shows that the efficacy actually continues up to year five. The original study of this, or one of the original studies, was back in 2016 that compared the efficacy of three years, four years, and five years in users or wares of eternogestrol. That study was out of human reproduction from November of 2016. And the short answer, yeah, there was no change in efficacy. They actually found that between the protection of three years to four years extended to five, there was no difference in contraceptive failure rates in those study cohort. So that's good news. Also, oddly enough, in the Planned Parenthood information, it actually states that Nexplanon can be used up to five years in use. Now, remember, that's off-label. That's not what the FDA says. But just like we know that Mirena went from five years, six years to seven years approval, there's plenty of medication in that 68 millimeters eternogestrel implant to carry a patient after three years. Now, here's what I do in my practice. I give the patient the information that it's currently approved for three years and have to stick with what's approved by label. However, I also tell them that we do a lot of things off-label and that they can continue it safely up to five years if they're comfortable with that. But I do need to document that that information was given to them off-label. Now, I definitely wouldn't go past five years because the data starts getting a little scant after that. But even though it's FDA-approved for three, there's no change in efficacy, according to the data, from years four and five. And again, interestingly enough, that's what Planned Parenthood recommends for Nexplanon use, which recommends it up to five years. 
Oh, a quick disclosure, guys. This session is not a paid endorsement or advertisement for Nexplanon or the Etronorgestrel implant. It just serves for medical education purposes and, again, not a specific endorsement of any one type of birth control. Well, now that we've covered that, let's get back to the specifics about this implant. The contraceptive implant is placed subdernally, and it has a core that contains 68 millimeters of eternergestrol. This is surrounded by an ethylene vinyl acetate copolymer skin. The ethylene vinyl acetate copolymer skin allows for a controlled release of eternergestrol over three years, and that's what was approved by the FDA. Of course, we know that that controlled release happens without a drop in efficacy, as we've already stated, for five years. Now, eternergestrol is the active metabolite of desogestrol. The single rod implant is 4 centimeters in length and 2 millimeters in diameter, and it's packaged in a preloaded disposable sterile applicator. This is the most effective LARC, according to the FDA and the CDC, at a percent failure rate of 0.03 to 0.05%. That's really low. Morena, for example, which is also super effective, has a failure rate around 0.15 to 0.3%. Remember that the eternergestrel is 0.03 to 0.05%. When the eternergestrel contraceptive implant cannot be felt or palpated in the patient's arm, you have to first rule out pregnancy with a urine pregnancy test. Remember that periods can be thrown off so you can't rely on the LMP during this evaluation. The patient should use an alternative method of contraception until the presence of the implant can be confirmed. Through review of clinical records and examination of the patient, the implant insertion location should be determined. All right, guys, now that's right out of the product labeling, the PI, okay? But that just makes sense, doesn't it? Plus, you can also see the mark on the skin where the insertion typically occurred. The point is, make sure that the patient remembers which arm it was placed. I mean, you'll be surprised. Cases of failed device insertion where no implant was delivered subdermally have also been documented both in the adverse events of the device itself and in the literature. So make sure that it always is actually deployed from the trocar and is left in the patient's arm. That's way best practice. It's supposed to be to palpate the device once you leave it in and have the patient palpate as well for confirmation that it's there. And of course, weird stuff can happen. I mean, it's rare, but there's even one case report showing migration of the device into the chest. Yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay, so more about this migration issue, okay? Now, there has been cases of migration more than two centimeters from the insertion site, although it's rare. Inadvertent deep placement has been reported to occur about one in every 1,000 placements. So it is pretty rare, but just remember to follow the right technique. The package insert states to enter the skin at an angle less than or at 30 degrees. That's pretty flat. And then as soon as you pierce the skin, then remember to drop that handle down. So once again, the trocar goes just underneath the dermis, right? This is a place subdermally. These recommendations for this optimal placement have changed in the past decade to de reduce or to mitigate the risks associated with deep insertion. 
placement is now recommended in the subcutaneous tissue about 8 centimeters from the medial epicondyle and 2 to 3 centimeters below the sulcus instead of in the sulcus line between the biceps and the tricep muscle. Now, I know this makes sense, but I've got to say it. If you can't palpate the device, don't go digging around in there looking for it. I mean, it's actually happened, okay? So you've got to locate it first. The Eternogestrel implant, marketed in the U.S. since 2010, contains barium. So this makes the device radio-opaque, and it allows for localization with two-dimensional X-ray, CT, MRI, or fluoro. Localization can also be accomplished by a skilled physician or a technician with just plain old 2G ultrasound. Yep, you've got to use a high-frequency linear array transducer, though. Otherwise, the image can be kind of gray. I mean, no pun intended, because all saw it was gray. A transducer of 10 megahertz or greater is the most effective. So you've got to have the right transducer. And remember, 10 megahertz is the one that's recommended. And that's one of the problems. Remember that most OBGYN offices have a transvaginal ultrasound, which is around anywhere from 7.5 to maybe a 9 megahertz. And the transabdominal transducers are anywhere from 3 to 5. So you can use that higher frequency one, but 10 gives you the best visualization. Well, let's say you've done that two-dimensional x-ray. You've ordered an ultrasound and you just don't see anything in there. Well, yeah, you can get a CT scan or an MRI. And the problem is, if you can't find it, well, that's a problem. If the implant cannot be located in either arm, then you've got to move to the chest x-ray. Chest x-ray is the recommended next step in the protocol to rule out migration of the device into the pulmonary vasculature. Now, I just said that and my knees went weak. Can you believe it? I mean, it's happened. But again, I want to talk everybody off the fence. Super rare. A complication like this is rare, but it's estimated to occur about one in every million insertions, and it most likely results from an unintentional placement into the brachial vein. A published case report did describe this very event, and again, totally unexpected and very rare. I like how we use the term migration, right? Like it had little feet and then moved. Same thing with like placental migration in obstetrics. The placenta doesn't migrate. The lower uterine segment forms and then that moves those low-lying placentas out of the way. Well, it's the same with this implant. It typically doesn't migrate, but this case report and the authors kind of agree as well. It probably was, again, that inadvertent deep placement or they had an aberrant location of the brachial vein and it was kind of placed there at first insertion. Yes, everything is possible and things can kind of move or shift a little bit as scar tissue takes place. And I can see how we can call that migration. But this movement of more than two centimeters is probably not migration. It's probably more deeper placement. All right, well, let's get back to our problem here. You've imaged the arm and it's not there. And you've imaged the chest and it's not there either. If all imaging fails to locate the device, then you have to order a serum eternogestrol blood level. Now, this is not part of a routine lab, but the manufacturer can help you get it. So remember, contact the representative or directly the company and ask for a serum eternogestrol level and that can be done. If that serum eternogestrel level is negative, then there's no implant in situ. 
Well, now that we're getting towards the end of the podcast, a quick word about removal. Let's just take basic usual removal first. Remember that the anesthetic for removal shouldn't be placed on top of the implant because it can make dissection more difficult, but it should be placed underneath the implant to rise it up towards the surface so that that small skin incision can then have it expel in an easier fashion. Also remember that per the manufacturer and by best practice, the incision for the implant removal should not be perpendicular to it, but should be along its long axis. That way you can extend the incision if necessary, so go along the long axis of the implant, which is the best practice recommendation. Typically, this incision is no more than half a centimeter long. And remember that removal is traditionally done at the proximal end of the implant. That's the end closest to the epicondyle. And as we end the podcast, a quick word about replacing a new nexponon when one was removed. Now, assuming that it's at the right depth and the right location, remember that's 8 to 10 centimeters from the medial epicondyle of the humerus and 3 to 5 centimeters posterior below the sulcus, then the manufacturer actually states that you can use the same incision as long as you've anesthetized it with local anesthetic once again. If the same incision is being used, then remember to put that lidocaine all the way into the tract and you can actually go to the same incision site and deploy a new device. So some people have their preference of using a contralateral arm or going in a separate insertion site and that's fine, but the manufacturer does say that as long as it's placed at the correct depth and the right position the first time, you can actually go through the same incision from which the previous implant was removed. All right, podcast family. Well, that brings us to a wrap. And as I've said before, yep, our podcast ideas come from real situations. So I had a buddy call from another city and go, man, I knew I put that thing in the arm and I knew it was right and I can't find it. Well, it turns out, oddly enough, it was there. It was just difficult to feel because the patient had gained some weight, which is odd because this is subdermal and it shouldn't really affect that because the fat pad is underneath it. But nonetheless, when they imaged it, it was in the arm. So probably user error in palpating it, but it came out just fine. Well, as always, we're thankful for you and we're thankful that you're part of our podcast family. And we'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls. 